please do not message or call, as the following program is a rerun of a previous live show. Any announcements made during the repeat may now not be applicable. Assalamu alaikum, uh, listeners. Welcome to the Ask, Ask Your Lawyer show. My name is Bodra Lamin. I'm your host today. Uh, today's topic, we're going to be talking about asylum, uh, which is quite a hot topic um, in terms of immigration and uh, just the uh, sort of general um, what is uh, asylum. I'm sure a lot of listeners will, would like to know what's the process of, of applying for asylum uh, and a number of other uh, topics under under asylum. Um, so it's a live show, um, listeners. Um, so we would we'll ask you to to phone in. Um, you can phone in on the studio n- number on 01582 481822 or you can text or WhatsApp on 0779 481822. So studio number is 01582481822 and uh, WhatsApp or text on 0779481822. So in respect of this topic of asylum, I'm today uh, joined by uh, my guests. Um, I'll ask my guests to introduce themselves. So um, Ash, do you want to just introduce yourself? Okay, so I'm I'm Ash um, Ali, uh, an immigration supervisor. And my name is Shaquille Shah. I'm an immigration caseworker at Wolf & Coast Listers. Great. Thank you very much, um, Ash and Shaquille. So, this topic of asylum, um, first of all, what is asylum, Ash? Okay, so asylum is when someone is in fear of returning to their country of origin because of some specific reason. Um, there are specific requirements that you need to satisfy before um, you can succeed in your asylum claim, but it's basically based on your fear of returning to your country of origin. Okay. And Shaquille, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah. So they have to prove that there is a fear for, for their, their, their fear for their life in the country of their origin or country they come from. And if they go back, they will uh, face persecution, which means they will be detained or beaten up or they will be killed in some cases. They are, uh, yeah. Okay. So in... In terms of asylum, obviously, it's quite a hot issue, uh, especially the way um, the media portray asylum seekers. What What would you say? What's your experience of asylum, um, Ash? In in that respect. Okay. Well, in, in terms of asylum seekers, mm. you know, um, they are some of the nicest people that you will come across, and some of them have suffered so much. Um, that you can actually learn a lot from them. Mm. Um, so when you listen to their stories, it's upsetting, intriguing as well, mm. and to see the strength that they have. The images that you see on the news, um, you know, that just shows how, how people behave when they are helpless. Okay, It doesn't mean that Europe is being invaded or what you see in the US, that it will be invaded. There is no invasion. It's just people running away from the fear that they have in their countries of origin. I understand there is some difficulty in understanding who is an asylum seeker and who is an economic migrant, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be that the media differentiate in that sense. Yeah. Um, So there we are. So, you know, some of them are, and a lot of them are genuine asylum seekers. Yeah. Um, Shaquille, just do you want to pick up on that? What is the difference then between an asylum seeker and an economic migrant? An asylum seeker is a person who is... um, 
basically destitute. He has no one and he has nowhere to stay and he has no um, financial means to support himself and he just needs a refuge. However, if you go on the other side where the people who are self-sufficient and they come to join their family or if they come to study or whatever purposes but they have no fear or they have no urgency in terms of uh, getting the application, if it's refused, they, they're still living a good life. And if it's not, but asylum seekers are on the risk and they are suffering on the, some of them on the borders or uh, some of them in uh, different countries on the boats. Mm. So uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite serious when it comes to asylum seekers. It's not just normal migrants. It's someone who is in, desperately in need. So, you know, like, like we, we were just talking about, the, the media blurred the lines, really, between economic migrants and, and asylum seekers. Legally... What's the difference? Because I assume uh, economic migrant has a right to work or potentially doesn't. What about asylum seekers? Asylum seekers, as when they are seekers, obviously they haven't got asylum status. They are not allowed to work. But once they get the status, then they can join normal seasons. They can then work and bring their family members and stuff. But as long as their process is ongoing, they have no rights as normal people like who have visas and stuff. They just get some sort of card which just confirms that they are asylum seekers only. It doesn't allow them to work or access to any benefits. Okay. So in terms of your experience, Ash, um, like I said, I'm just I'm sort of still focusing on the uh, the media portrayal of asylum seekers, uh, and one of the portrayal um, in the media is that we are being overrun by mm. asylum applications, and um, you know the asylum seekers from all over Europe coming mm. and, and applying for asylum. What is your experience in terms of numbers? If you can give some kind of indication, I don't have specific numbers uh, before me. However, I can tell you, the the UK has one of the smallest numbers of asylum seekers in comparison to the rest of the European Union. Uh, Germany has a very large number, as well as Poland. Um, Spain, Italy and Greece have a high number. You could just tell just because of the fact that they are geographically located on the outside of the European Union. Most asylum seekers would have to battle through Europe before they come to the UK and therefore our numbers are smaller. However, the media portrayal here is far more conservative um, than it is in Germany or Spain. Um, we, you know, we are living under this threat that we will be invaded by asylum seekers and migrants in general. However, the numbers that we get are comparably small um, to Italy, let's say. And you can see what's happening in Greece and Italy. And there have been recent developments, actually many years ago now, four or five years ago, where it was said that Greece is inundated, that their systems are actually cracking mm. um, and that they, they can't cope. Yeah. Um, that's not the case. We're nowhere near that in the UK. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so, uh, listeners, as you know, this is a live show. I would like to hear from you. Uh, please call in with any questions or queries that you have about asylum. If you've got any uh, general questions that you'd like to ask um, if you'd like to take part in our in our debate and discussion uh, please call us on the studio on 582-481-822 or whatsapp or text us on 0779-481-822 okay so we've um, established um, what is asylum um, what are the what are the requirements um, of, of asylum then Ash okay. what do you have to prove so in order to claim asylum you need to prove that you are in fear of persecution um 
and Shaquille has um, discussed that briefly. Um, and it has to be for a conventional reason, which I will discuss in a little while. Um, and then you need to show that you can't seek protection in your country of origin and that you cannot relocate internally. So fear, obviously, you need to show that you're scared of someone and that persecution would be physical or mental. Conventional reason, there are five reasons, which is race, religion, nationality, social group and political opinion. So, for example, if you are part of an opposition party in Sudan, um, that would be a political opinion because of your views. You could be attacked or killed by the opposition or the, or the ruling um, governing party. Um, that would be your conventional reason. Okay, um, the other most clever and the best um, conventional reason is the social group. So that's left wide open for the courts to actually discuss and interpret. So social group could be a person that's a female and that's alone. So a lone woman returning to Pakistan, for example, would be at a higher risk than a man. And that woman would be classified as a member of a particular social group. And therefore, any fear that stems out of that could allow her to, to grant, be granted asylum. Okay. Do you want to give some examples of, of um, mm. uh, you know, people who have claimed asylum? Give yep. some examples as to the, the, the situation or the scenario? Yeah. So there was uh, one of my clients was uh, a Pakistani woman, married. Uh, she came to the UK. She separated from her husband. Um, she then claimed asylum that if she returns, her family would obviously not want to know her because of the reputational risk. Her in-laws would not want to take responsibility for her and therefore she would be alone. A woman that's alone in Pakistan is considered to be at risk um, and therefore she was granted asylum. Another one um, would be a homosexual man. A homosexual man would be considered uh, a member of a particular social, social group um, and because of his sexuality, if he is to return to Pakistan, he would be at risk. And therefore, he was granted asylum as well. Um, on the other hand, um, you can have people for their race. Um, someone from Afghanistan um, who is a Shia Muslim because of his ethnicity, and he, he, his ethnicity was Mongolian. Um, he was at risk and he was granted asylum. It was a long battle, a four-year battle, but eventually he was granted asylum because his risk stemmed from the fact that he was Shia, and secondly, because of ethnicity, so race. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Ash, for that. So, Shaquille, once you know, once you're in a situation where you need to apply for asylum, okay, and we've, we've, Ash has pointed out the uh, different grounds that you can apply for asylum. What do you? How do you? How would you show? that your life is at risk if you went back to, I don't know, Pakistan or Afghanistan or any other country, what, how, how would you prove your case? So they always uh, would want to see the evidence of it as well. They're not going to only believe on verbally that you said, oh, I'm at risk. They want to know where is the actual risk. And they, then they can also check up in the country whether that, that risk exists in the country and whether there is such a thing which a person is claiming for. If he's claiming from Pakistan, they would want to know whether it's there, is there any risk which exists in that country and is not uh, protected by a government or if the government is uh, looking to um, persecute people who are 
taking part in these kind of activities which are which are prohibited by the government so the risk is always backed up by evidence which could be a potentially police station report if say a person committed a criminal offense or offense against country and he flee the country then they they can provide a copy of the FIR first incident report or any court cases with evidence of cases that they have cases against them or if the countries have uh, exit control list which means that people are on the list of people who can't leave or enter the country because they are wanted if they do enter the country they have warrants issued if they have any sort of those uh, documents they can bring that over with their application because they have to evidence every application by um, documentation as well even if it's translated in english even if it's in a different language they get translated but they do need to evidence so they do need evidence of it as well. Okay, so I'm assuming that um evidence can include um if they've been in the media, yeah. um you know t- um sort of uh, pictures. It's not um, limited to just media. It yeah. can be anything. Mm-hmm. If they have inj- injuries from previous they can get a medical report that they were persecuted tortured before mm-hmm. and they are risking it again. The medical report will be an evidence or a country expert report for for example if they say they rely on a country expert the country expert will provide a report saying that this country has the that risk and this person basically they just authenticate um their their statement by saying that he is actually telling the truth okay uh, just to develop yeah. there there's two forms of evidence subjective and objective mm-hmm. objective is now classified as background evidence so subjective would be anything relating to that person specifically mm-hmm. so articles that may refer to him personally or letters or medical documents would be subjective objective or background would be anything to do with the country in general so for example in bangladesh there are reports of how the bmp are persecuted that would be considered background evidence not specific to the client but in general it shows that they are at risk so you know it, it, it's a, it's a simple form okay so in terms of um uh, evidence sometimes it can be difficult um <laughs> I assume trying to get hold of this evidence because um uh, the country in question probably doesn't necessarily mm. want to assist you because if yeah. you're if you're a political um you know if you're applying for sort of political asylum um you know you're probably any enemy of the state for that country yeah. so they don't they don't want to assist you getting asylum they want you back in the country yeah. so how does it work in that situation okay. then so it's not mandatory to have any evidence i've had asylum clients succeed without anything at all nothing to even prove their identity because a genuine asylum seeker leaving in fear of their life wouldn't normally say let me pick up a whole bunch of evidence before i go most genuine asylum seekers wouldn't have anything because you normally think oh tomorrow this time i could be dead let me just run you leave everything behind and you run um so in most cases um it's unlikely that you will have any evidence obviously evidence helps but in most cases the home office would question how did you obtain this now shakil mentioned fir mm-hmm. in most countries you can't actually obtain that report yeah so if someone does have that it sometimes works against them because how did they obtain that yeah and the fact that they've obtained it shows that it could be fraudulent yeah so it's a balance that we have to weigh yeah yeah absolutely and shakil what about um 
and you know, sort of witness statements and things like that. Does that come into place? So for example, if you know somebody um, who's obviously aware of the situation, can they provide statements to say, "Yep, um, you know, I know this person. He was a he was an activist uh, and uh, on the front line of 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 you know the political situation." Does that help? Yeah, they can give witness statements which are based on truth. Obviously, they um, they if they have any information which could assist uh, the applicant, they can obviously welcome to give it. But sometimes they are required to testify in court as well. If the matter goes to court, then they will have to come and testify against it and it has to be based on truth whatever they're saying okay so what, what is the process then for asylum does um how does it work someone turns up to the uk um what do they do do they just say i'm claiming asylum how, how does it work okay so you should normally claim asylum at the earliest opportunity if you are um in fear so if the fear exists before you start traveling to the uk then it's expected that you claim at the port so on arrival you notify the authorities all that proves is that you're credible, okay? You know, if your house is being burgled, you wouldn't wait five days before you call the police. You would call them immediately. So because your life is at risk, you would claim asylum immediately. If, however, you've come for a reason, mm. um, you've come for six months, right? And that's only on a visit visa. Three months into your holiday in the UK, something goes wrong in your country of origin. You can claim at that time because suddenly this fear arised mm. um, and you could do that at Croydon. You'll make an appointment with the asylum screening unit, you attend, and then you'll have your first screening interview. Okay? And if you don't do that and you do it at the port, then brilliant, they will do the same process there and then. Okay, so how does it work then in terms of, you know, once you've turned up, let's just say you turned up at a port, you've said, I want to claim asylum. What happens at that point? So they do your screening interview which means it's, 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 it's just an introductory interview. It's not a substantive. It's, it, they don't get to details, but they just establish your identity and you have to give brief reasons as to why you claim asylum and you have to do the basic background. It just It's just your profile. So a screening is just a profile which they build up and then they book a, a substantive interview where the case is fully discussed. Okay, so what happens? Do you just sit around in the airport while this all takes place? Yeah, they have a screening units there and then the officers are, are, officers are there where they can obviously conduct it from there and then and if you need um, somewhere to stay or if you need to be detained or stuff like that, they can obviously arrange it there and then because you have nowhere to go from the airport. Okay, so after that process, let's just say you're screened and, and they say to you, okay, well, they're not going to give you a decision, are they, straight away? No. Um, how long potentially are you so waiting? It takes months. It take it can take weeks. It can take months. It depends on the case to case. But usually, it's about six months. Do you get substantive interview within six months? Okay. And in that in that time, what happens? Are you staying in a? Do they give you your board? Do they give you food? How how does that work? So uh, if you are homeless, if you have no one in the country, you are destitute. They obviously you get for some sort of benefits. They can give you a refuge somewhere to stay and you're going to get limited benefits, but that's only until your process finishes. Okay. Um, I'm just, whilst was, Shaquille was um, answering this question, um, it came to me in the news, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a boy in a school in Stoke, I think it was, mm-hmm. and um, he, he was in the classroom and someone took his photo and they were saying he's about 30 years of age. Oh, yes. And, and he managed to get himself <laughs> into a GCC classroom. Um, 
How, how does that happen? Do they take, you know, did they ask about your age? Do, they, do you have to prove your age? So the, the screening interview is a standard interview. Mm-hmm. So there are a set number of questions set. The, the question is set. So each applicant will be asked the same question. So it'll be your family member, family members, details of your wife, your children, your age, mm-hmm. um, your date of birth and so on. Now, some claimants... Um, understand the fact that those that are minors under 18 are given um, priority and are given leave until the age of 17 and a half solely because they are minors so whether their asylum claim succeeds or not they will be granted a form of leave until they are 17 and a half so it could be that this person in question did the same and claimed that he was a minor um, just so that he could fall under the um, unaccompanied asylum seekers process. That's a separate process in comparison to adults. Okay, so those that are minors go through a separate process okay. where they have more, uh, they have a legal guardian, they'll have a representative present for all of their interviews and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they obviously get some form of leave at the end. And that, that clearly has happened here. If this person looks like a 30-year-old, he's clearly claimed that he's 15. Um, but surely, is there some kind of process at the at the port where they can determine what your true age is? Yes. Is there any type of testing and things like that? So, testing's unlawful. Mm-hmm. However, there is something called Merton Compliance Report, Compliant Report. Um, so, the social services would undertake that report. Until and unless you are proven to be over 18, you will be considered to be under 18, and therefore you could be placed in a school during that time because you've got to obviously protect interest of this person who claims to be a child so until you've got evidence to prove otherwise you've got to treat him as a child so they would have rights if someone under mm-hmm. the 18 they would mm-hmm. have rights to attend school yes um, be supported okay um, by the social services so they were given a specific amount of money they'll be accommodated mm-hmm. um, obviously the rights are completely different children are vulnerable and therefore it's a duty on us to ensure that they are protected during the asylum claim obviously you have certain people that try and abuse the system Mm -hmm. and claim that they are children when they are not necessarily children Um, but then that report would indicate whether they are a child or not yeah okay so we've established um, what is asylum you know what the requirements what the process what the process is Um, so okay we'll we'll discuss two two different scenarios then Um, so scenario one um, you apply for asylum, uh, and the asylum is uh, application is successful. Uh, what happens next? What can you What can you do after you know you've been granted um, asylum? So once you're granted asylum, you can basically do whatever you want to do. Basically, you are as as other citizens. You can get education. You can get work. You can move freely within the Europe or wherever you want to travel to. You can do everything if you're granted asylum. Okay, and um, what what sort of common, um, because obviously asylum is very much linked to geopolitical what's going on in the world, um, so what, you know, what areas of the world are we seeing people coming from, uh, what, um, you know, what type of people are being granted asylum, no. any ideas? So the largest number of asylum seekers in the UK are from Pakistan. Okay, um, the next big community would be Zimbabwe. Um, so it just depends 
on basically where there's turmoil in the world. Um, certain communities and so people from certain countries tend to go to the the largest diaspora. So you see a lot of Moroccans traveling to Spain, a lot of Algerians traveling to France, um, you know, Pakistanis because of the colonial link come to England, mm-hmm. Indians, Bangladeshis, it's the same, Zimbabweans as well. Um, so Pakistanis are the largest number. However, they have the, one of the highest refusal rates as well, solely because some of the claims are unfounded. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'm going to go back to Shaquille because obviously you're from Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's going on? What, 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 why is there such a high number of applications from, from Pakistan? Is so there something geopolitical or...? So as Ash said, unfounded, that means if there is no fear, if there is unfounded fear, if they're claiming to be afraid of something which government can control and obviously it does control it's a country they have their forces they have a government they have everything set in place so if somebody comes and say says this is not correct but it is everyone knows that they are protected in pakistan the government takes over most of the things unless there is something in relation to like to say terrorism or um Uh, like extremist groups and stuff like that that is a bit of it comes in some some of the claims are accepted and some of the people apply just for the sake of it and if you apply a weak application then you will be refused if you rely on a government reason which government clearly has access to and clearly has protection to then it's more likely to be refused Okay, um, thank you very much, Shaquille. We're coming up to the break, um, and we'll carry on our discussion after the break. So we're talking about asylum. We discussed what is asylum, what the requirements are, who can claim asylum, the process involved. Um, and um, obviously, we'd like to hear um, from listeners. This is a live show. So if you can kindly, um, after the break, if you can kindly um, contact the studio, um, on 01582481822, or you can text or WhatsApp on 0779481822. We'll see you shortly after the break. Thank you very much. Assalamualaikum. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum listeners, uh, welcome back to Ask Your Low Show. Uh, today's show we're talking about asylum. Um, just before the, the break uh, we talked about what is asylum, uh, what are the requirements, who can claim asylum and what happens once you are, um, once, um, you are granted asylum. Uh, this is a live show listeners so we'd like you to phone in. Um, you can phone in the studio on 01582-481-1822 or you can WhatsApp and text us on 0779-481-822. So please, it's a live show. Um, we've got um, experts here in the show today and um, you know, please phone in uh, if you've got any questions or queries in relation to asylum. Um, so... Um, uh, in terms of our guests, Ash, do you just want to uh, introduce yourself again, please? I'm Ash. Um, and I'm, the, yeah, I'm Ash Ali. I'm, the, I'm an immigration supervisor. My name is Shaquille Shah and I'm an immigration caseworker. Okay, thank you. So, in terms of um, uh, asylum, um, we've talked about what happens when you're granted asylum. Uh, what happens if, if you're refused asylum? What can you do in that situation, Ash? Okay, so in most cases... Um, people would be given a right of appeal. So you can appeal to the first-tier tribunal um, within 14 days of that refusal. Um, After that, you will obviously be called into a hearing by the judge. So it'll be an independent judge, independent from the Home Office, as well as yourself. Um, 
and then both representatives from both sides will have an opportunity to put their case forward to the judge. It takes a lot of work beforehand as well. It would be just as a normal civil claim. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be your opportunity to put forward a full witness statement as well as your evidence in person. So once you attend, you will be um, questioned, cross-examined um, by both sides. Um, you could also bring in witnesses during that hearing as well as submit paper evidence to prove your claim. Okay. Now, obviously, sounds great, but mm. I'm an asylum seeker. I've just turned up. I've got mm. no money. How mm. do I afford legal representation? Yeah. So in that case, Wolf & Co can offer you legal aid. So depending on whether you are destitute or whether you have an income and so on, we can obviously assess your means, assess the merits of your case and grant you legal aid. Okay. So how does that process work then, Shaquille, in terms of um, you know, applying for legal aid or trying to get some funding in respect of your case? How, how does that work? What's the process for, for someone seeking asylum? So when someone obviously got asylum refusal, say they're going for asylum and if it's refused, they can obviously contact a firm which is legal aid contracted firm. Mm-hmm. So once they go to them, they have to fill up application form where they give all the information, including their financial and if they have any partners or their income. And they have to put all the information in. And then on the basis of that, if there's a means test, if they fall under mean test, if they have no income or they have very less income, then they can, obviously, they are entitled for uh, legal aid. And once the legal aid is covered, mm-hmm. once the legal aid is granted, then it covers all the way through till the end of the matter. Okay, so um, I assume not many firms out there do, do legal aid in terms of uh, asylum? Or there are it? many firms, yeah. uh, legal aid firms. Okay. Even in Luton, there are a few firms. We observe Wolf & Co. We have a legal aid. We are a legal aid contracted firm. And there are quite a few, few other firms as well. And mm. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of, um, Ash, in terms of um, trying to get that legal aid, mm. is there any initial, in terms of the strength of your case? Because let's just say, you know, you don't have any prospects of success in terms of your case you know it's a very very weak case um and you apply for legal aid is there anything which would say well we're not going to give you legal aid because quite frankly your your case is zero or very little success, chance of well, success? in very rare cases yeah. that is the case that someone has claimed asylum and that has a very weak case um and that legal aid wouldn't be granted that would be a very rare case. I haven't come across many in my time during practice. Um, but if, if you do, unfortunately, we won't be able to grant you legal aid. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you'd, you'd be able to understand the strength of your case just from the fact that the Home Office decision would, would make that quite clear. Um, how weak your claim is. Okay, okay. so you've got your legal aid, mm-hmm. um, you've got uh, a hearing date. Mm. What happens at the hearing? How, how, how does it work? Is that like a normal um, so at court? the hearing, it's, it's like a normal court. Okay. Um, obviously, it won't have as many people as a Crown Court because it is a bit more personal, mm-hmm. just to make you feel comfortable. Um, you'll be sitting there. The lawyers from your side will be sitting on one side. And the Home Office's lawyers would be on the other side and you'll have a judge in front of you. Uh, and Asha would ru- run around. You will then be invited... After all the preliminary issues are settled, you'll be invited to give your evidence. So your lawyer would take you through your examination in chief. Um, And then obviously you will go through your 
cross-examination as well. And that would be conducted by the Home, of- home Office's representative. Okay. So you've had a hearing. What happens after the hearing, Shaquille? So after the hearing, that obviously the, on the day, they don't give decision. Usually they don't give decision on the day unless it's an exceptional case where a judge uses his discretion to give a decision on the day, but that doesn't usually happen. They take a couple of weeks, few weeks to decide, and then they give a written decision with the written reasons of refusal or acceptance. If an appeal is accepted, then they will have given the reasons why they accepted and they will grant. They will ask Home Office to grant him a leave as a refugee and if they refuse it they will have to give substantive reasons as to why they refused it and then they will be given further right to appeal or we can ask for permission to appeal in some cases okay so you must have a certain amount of time then, i assume to to make uh, an appeal once you've got yeah you have decision. 14 days yeah. to appeal after you receive the decision okay so um uh, you know let's just say <clears throat> your application not granted um, what happens at the, you know, how does it work in terms of appeal at a higher okay. level? So at that stage, what you will do, and it's a, it's a two-stage process, so you will need to apply for permission to appeal. And unfortunately, you will have to seek permission from the first-tier tribunal first. So another judge would look at it and determine whether there was an error of law in the first judge's decision. And that is a very high hurdle to pass. If permission is granted, then brilliant, you go to the upper tribunal, you have a full trial there. If that's not the case and it's been refused, you then have a further 14 days from that decision to apply for permission from the upper tribunal itself. So if permission is granted, so that's stage one done, then the upper tribunal will call you for a hearing. At that hearing you will need to discuss where the error of law is. So you'll need to prove to that upper tribunal judge where the first-year tribunal judge went wrong, okay, in law. And that's quite difficult to prove in most cases. Yeah, so it's effectively, it's similar to other tribunals, like an employment tribunal. Mm -hmm. If you want to appeal, (coughs) it can only be on a a matter of um, if the judge has got the law incorrect, not the facts. Not the facts. So... um, I suppose what circumstances? I assume it'll be very much fact-based um, in terms of the decisions. But in terms of in terms of the law, what what common sort of issues crop up in terms of judges and their decision making? So normally it could be the misapplication of a legal test. So, for example, um, let's say the assessment of whether someone is part of a political party and whether that person actually has a su- sufficient political opinion. If the judge then says, well, I don't believe that you satisfy the requirements to have a political opinion, for example, um, then you can say that's an error of law. On the other hand, you can say, well, you know, does the fear that he has amount to persecution? So the judges sometimes say, oh, no, I, I don't find anything that you are worried about. Your fear does not amount to persecution. And then you can argue that the upper tribunal saying, yes, that does amount to persecution. And therefore, his application of the law was incorrect. And that would be your ground of appeal. And you'd succeed on that as well. Okay. Um, Shaquille, is, is there a lot of success up at, up at tribunal? Or is it quite difficult to to get, you know, once obviously, you know, you lost the case at the um, appeal, 
is it quite difficult then so, to turn that around? Yeah, as Ash discussed, if there is an error of law, if there is an actual error of law and you can establish that, then there is obviously more chances of success. The most of the cases do get accepted by a particular tribunal because it's obviously that's one step over. That means it's, it has more uh, legal standing than lower tribunal, and they can obviously overrule any rulings made by um, lower uh, first tier tribunal. Okay. Um, any um, Ash? Any sort of cases that you want to touch upon? Quite significant cases in in upper tribunal that have wide-ranging, I suppose, consequences for or um, in terms of asylum seekers? Has there been any anything recent? Or oh, well, um, my recent one I actually mentioned earlier mm. is the um, is similar to the the Shia Muslim that claimed asylum solely on the fact that he was a Shia and because of his race he will be at risk. So that went all the way up to not just the upper tribunal, it went above to the Court of Appeal. Um, and then when we won that eventually, the Home Office changed their stance and then drafted up a new policy solely for Shias with his ethnicity and said that those that are Shia with the Hazara ethnicity are, in, are at risk in Pakistan. So anyone that claims... Um, for that reason, is highly likely to be granted. So that's basically the ch- a change in the law. Okay, that's really um, that's quite interesting um, in terms of the the process. So we've really covered um, everything really in terms of um, you know what is asylum, the requirements, the process, uh, what happens in terms of uh, appeal, and also taking it to a um, to a higher tri- to an upper tribunal. Um, in respect of um, your case, so uh, let's just say obviously you've got two different routes. One is that you granted asylum at the first stage. One is you you've gone through the the appeal process effectively, and you've been granted asylum. Um, so what happens next? Obviously, you're here in this country. Um, potentially, your family are, are in the home country. Potentially at risk, Shaquille. Um, can they, can can asylum, someone who's been granted asylum bring their family over? Yes, of course they can bring their dependents and their family members over. Then the under eighteen are always um, acceptable because if they have any dependents and wife and children, they are always in and the parents. But then any other family members, it depends on the uh, what risk they have and what um, relationship they have with the uh, refugee. Okay, so what is the process, Ash, then, if, if an asylum seeker wants to, oh, sorry, someone granted asylum yep. wants to bring the family? So if a refugee wants to apply for family reunion, mm-hmm. okay, so I'm just going to clarify something that Shakul said, you can only apply for your children and your wife. Unfortunately, parents don't fall into that category. Okay. Although there is legislation being passed that may probably cover that. But we'll wait. We'll update you in, in December, hopefully. Um, in the meantime, you can obviously submit an application Mm-hmm. a family reunion application and that is specifically for refugees that have had family members prior to leaving their country of origin so it has to be pre-flight so if you were married before you left your country country of origin with say two children you can apply for them mm-hmm. okay anything after that if you got married after you left um, and say you know you met someone in south africa when you were zimbabwean and you got married there, that the rules would be different. Okay, so in in terms of your pre-flight family members, you can apply for them, 
Okay, you submit an application at the embassy, you indicate who your family members are, mm-hmm. and you've got to prove that they are you have a subsisting relationship with them and that you've got a continuing relationship with them as well. Okay. So is that something that I assume they try to obviously, you know, if you've just been granted asylum, you're mm. going to be you're going to want your family to join you as soon as you can because yep. obviously, you know, they're, they're potentially at a risk as well. Mm. So is there a fast track system or how does it work? So normally applications are considered within 12 weeks yeah. of submission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you can get the application out and successfully secure an appointment at the embassy or the high commission, mm-hmm. then it will be 12 weeks from then. Okay. It doesn't necessarily take so long. Okay. So, um, in uh, Shaquille, what about the right to um, the right to work? Uh, once you've been granted asylum, can you... You know, start start working. Yeah, start, yeah, you can start working okay. if you get a job. Okay. What about benefits? Can you um, um, can you apply for benefits? Can you receive benefits? Yeah, you can receive certain benefits, but not all as British citizens. So it's not it's not in exactly the same. As, yeah, it's as, not exactly uh, the same. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, in terms of um, you know, in terms of family, um, family reunion, bringing across um, your family um so h- how would you prove then that, you know obviously that this is this is my family you know because obviously hello uh, we've got we've got caller hello hello hi. hello hi, there. how are you uh, good thanks yeah how are you oh very well thank you um brother i had a question um yeah. if uh, someone wanted to come over um via the uh tier one up the investment um channel what are the requirements? What's the uh, what's the amount that one has to invest, um, and then how much sort of uh, what, what assets does he need or she need in order for them to come through the tier one channel? Okay, um, I'll ask Ash to answer that question. Okay, so you've got two options within tier one. You've got the investor route or the entrepreneur route. The investor route, you'll need to prove that you will invest two million pounds in the UK. And um, with the tier one entrepreneur route, you need to show that you will invest 200,000 within the UK. Does that okay. answer your question, Imran? Uh, yes, uh, just, just if you can just sort of elaborate mm. on that. I mean, the two million and the 200,000 is, is a vast, that's a massive gap. So mm. what are the benefits from either one? I mean, you know, it's a no-brainer for someone who, you know, for someone to go for two hundred thousand, as yes. opposed to the two million. Yeah. But what is the benefits or the pros and the cons from one or from one uh, um, the other? It, it, they are two different visas altogether. The, um, investments right. would be so under the investor um, visa, you are allowed to invest in properties, invest in stocks and shares. However, as an entrepreneur, you need to show that you will set up a business in the UK. So you will actually have to have a registered business in the UK to, under which you will then invest and then have a successful business running, hopefully, by the end of your visa. And then you can apply can for that, an extension. I see. Can that investment in a business mm-hmm. um, uh, actually be uh, in someone else's business? Yes, it could be in an in a existing business. Um, but you need to show that you have made a substantial investment in there. However, the problem that arises here, if you are not in the UK, 
then you can't prove that you have made that investment. So some some people say, some yeah. some people say say for example that are already in the UK um, under some family visa or a tier four visa will need to prove that they they, they can then use that um, requirement and say that they have invested in an existing business. Okay, so that's the the rule. That's these are the differences for tier one investor and entrepreneur. Okay, so if you are. With, with a two million investment, so if the individual decided to buy, say, about five houses, yes, does that qualify them? Uh, it depends on that the value. Accumulates, it depends on the value. That, that accumulates to two million plus. Yes. So, unfortunately, before you apply, it's unlikely you can prove that you have already invested. You will need to prove that you will invest. So the biggest requirement would be that you have got two million pounds available to you to come and invest. Okay. All right. Um, thank you, Imran, for your call. I hope uh, that answers your questions. Um, obviously, if you've got um, any further questions, please email studio and uh, Ash will be uh, happy to pick that up. Thank you for your call. Okay. So, sorry, uh, we've just slightly gone off topic because obviously today's show is about, um, uh, about asylum. So, we were talking uh, about the the family requirement um shaquille do you just want to pick up a little bit on that um how do you go about proving that is my family so the family members if they are in your country of origin you have to prove that the relationship with them and if you can as much evidence as possible if they can approve provide evidence of marriage marriage certificates or any birth certificates mm -hmm. or dna's if if they want to do dna for their children and stuff they can do that as well and uh, all the evidence which they have prior to is uh, basically leave from the country. Mm -hmm. Once he left, they can get evidence prior to that, that before that he had a family unit, which obviously now needs to be reunited. So, for example, you know, birth certificates, pictures, all of these things will come yeah. into play. Okay. All right. So, I think we've, we've, we've covered the topic um, of, uh, of asylum. And we've really discussed what you know what what is asylum, the process, um, what happens once you're granted asylum, family rights, all of these things. Uh, just want to conclude. Obviously, once you've granted asylum, how um, what is the next step in terms of you want to become you know a permanent resident of this country or um, eventually you want to become a citizen? What, what are the steps involved? Uh, so once you do five years of uh, refugee, then you can apply for indefinite leave to remain, mm -hmm. which leads to your, uh, if that's permanent residence, which leads to you becoming a British citizen. Okay. Okay, great. So um, actually today's topic really is is asylum and Brexit. We thought, we, we, um, we thought we'll, we'll throw this in as well because it is a very hot topic um, in terms of Brexit and um, immigration. Uh, but uh, I'm sure as listeners are probably aware, um, nothing's really been agreed or nothing's really happened. Um, so uh, we can't really second guess as to what could potentially happen or what. Um, I suppose maybe some people are confused. Um, what is the current status if I'm an EU national in this country and you know, it's approaching Brexit? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I do? Look, at the moment, if you are an EU national, it's unlikely anything will change. Okay, it's unlikely that the government would say, we don't want any European Union nationals here and therefore you should all leave. It's unlikely that will happen because there are almost one and a half million Brits out in, 
in the EU, or the other remainder of the EU, um, and therefore that will affect them as well. Mm. Um, however, the government will confirm once the free movement of people issue is resolved, what will happen with those that are um, here already as European Union nationals. Now, my personal opinion is that nothing will change and they will be allowed to continue as European Union nationals. However, those that are willing to travel in future from the date of Brexit, which is the 29th of March, the system might be different and the laws might be different at that time. So anyone coming in new might be um, under the new set of rules that will be hopefully notified to us by the government. Um, but the existing ones, I don't think they've got anything to worry about and any of their family members as a result. Okay. Shaquille, what happens if you're a EU national and um, you are... You know you are worried. Uh, what could you what could you potentially do? What what options do you have? So they can get um, in the basically in permanent residence, which will confirm their residence. But that they can they are permanent residents in the UK. So even if say after Brexit they tell everyone to leave, the permanent residents will have right to stay in the UK because they are permanent residents. Okay. What's the criteria for that then, for permanent residents? So you have to stay in the UK for five years mm-hmm. on uh, active, like basically you're, you're working or taking part in everything, continuously living for five years, you can apply for uh, permanent residence under European Union. Okay, and that permanent residence, that means effectively you can come and go as you please? Yeah, you can come and go as you please because okay. you have a, a visa that is a visa. And you can work uh, yeah. in terms of... Yeah. So, okay, the other sort of issue, I suppose, um, you know, crops are, I suppose EU nationals, <coughs> you know, as you said, Ash, we, we don't know for sure what, what is going to happen, but uh, it seems as though that, you know, if you've been in this country, you're EU national, you're settled then, you know, that's not going to change, um, or it's unlikely to change. What about um, if you're the spouse of a EU national and uh, you are not an EU national yourself? What, what is the situation then, um, Shaquille? What, hap- what happens in that situation? So the family members, no, as long as there's nothing happened to the EU nationals, mm-hmm. they won't affect the family members as well. If something which affects the main person, the the main European citizen, then it would affect his family members accordingly as well. But we don't know at the moment that what is going to come in place. And if at the moment the current people are uh, fine at the moment, but once the Brexit is in place, then there might be new set of rule which will affect the main European citizen and which will accordingly affect his family members as well. Okay. Um, is there anything to, in terms of, at the EU national, is there anything that they need to be aware of? Is there anything that they, that, that they need to do, Ash, at this stage? Or is it just a case of wait and see? I think it's a case of wait and see, um, even with uh, permanent residence applications. All that does is it confirms that you've been here for five years. Mm. It doesn't change anything. Whether you have that card or not, you are still an EU national who has the same rights as one with a card or not. Okay. Great, thank you very much. So, um, we'll be coming up to uh, coming up to the end of the show. Uh, unfortunately, um, just want to thank um, Ash and Shaquille for coming in today. Um, it's been a great show. We've touched upon asylum and and also uh, about Brexit and how that affects um, uh, citizens' rights. Uh, if you've got any um, you know any questions, uh, please feel free to email the studio, and um, we're happy to pick those uh, questions up. If you've got any general questions. Um, but um, um, th- thank you very much for, for listening. Um, th- thank you to um, Ashley Shaquille for coming thank in today. You. And um, 
uh, inshallah we will um, we'll be back on the air next week um, salam alaikum thank you for listening to our podcast why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefm luton